I've done a bunch of ventures and part of me thinks that if I would have understood this, or part of me knows that there's no way I would have done all that because launching something from scratch, as you guys know, is you know, a, a challenge, a massive challenge. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. Kevin, super oh, exciting cool. episode. We got your brother, Paul Henderson. I don't know if I should lead with the fact that he's your brother. It's not why he's here. He's here because he's an incredible entrepreneur. He is, you can give the background here, Kev. Introduce your brother as only a brother can by telling us his background and put as negative of a spin on it to try to undermine his accomplishments well, as all, any brother would do. It all started on a brisk evening in the 1980s. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, so... Paul and I are our brothers. We're fairly close in age. So we, we, we've been probably the closest of all of our siblings for our whole life. So it's fun, fun to have you on the pod, Paul. How many siblings, Kevin? Six. So I'm the youngest of six. six. So Paul, Paul's number five of six. So Okay. So you guys were hanging out at the little guy's with, table, commiserating about the, the bigger guys? For, for the most part. I was hanging out at the band table. Paul was hanging out at the lacrosse and football table, making fun of me at the band table is, is really what was happening. True. Growing up, True. <laughs> not mu not much has changed with with me as a lawyer and Paul Paul as a uh, business executive. So Paul's got an interesting background, pretty traditional corporate, I would say. Started his career at Goldman and while at Goldman Sachs, went through the Carnegie Mellon MBA program that they, at least at the time, I don't know if they they still are, but at least at the time, we're partnered with Goldman Sachs. After, after Goldman went to GE Capital, the leadership program, which if I recall correctly, keep me honest here, Paul, it's a 24-month program where you do three eight-month rotations at different groups throughout GE. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, so you were, at, yeah, you were at Cap, GE Capital specifically at the time, as I recall. Yep. Spent some time in New York and some time in, in Minnesota and then went to work at GE Capital full-time for, for a little bit, then jumped over to Apple. Uh, super interesting experience at Apple and finance. Uh, again, keep me honest here, but as I recall, you were you were essentially the lead. You had been doing work on fleet financing at GE Capital, and they wanted that experience to have someone build out what has since become effectively their enterprise leasing program for Apple products, right? And so built that program out, reporting directly to the CFO, got some incredible experience on the finance side at Apple before taking a pretty big pivot to join a, I don't know if we would characterize them as a startup, but a pretty nascent company in the cannabis industry in California and made a made a full jump. What does nascent mean, Kevin? What is, what is that? Oh, Define sorry, that Eric. for our audience. I've got a senior going to college, so SAT words are, are yes. in my head right now. A and nascent early, business. Early stage, just emerging in growth. So okay. they, they were... Um, had been kind of growing. And we, we can get into the story of what they were doing and what you did there. But that was your, your jump into cannabis. So hopped from Grupo Floor, then 
over was it was it direct in, from Grupo in, to High Times, right? In in this to Grupo floor, so CFO to CEO. So that was my first stint as a CEO at Grupo That's floor. Right. And and then I joined High Times four years ago as the president right. and then the CEO shortly after that. Yeah, so many of our listeners may know High Times, even if they don't want to admit it, they probably heard of High Times. So Paul spent the last four years as uh, as president and then CEO of High Times, saw them through a, a period of pretty rapid growth. And then earlier this year, which is why we really wanted to chat and kind of hear about that experience leading up to uh, eventually becoming an acquisition entrepreneur. And you've been involved in a lot of things over your career, so maybe we'll back up and start there. But it, it, it really culminated with kind of the first controlling, you know, majority ownership purchase that you made earlier this year, left high times this summer and, and, and are kind of running that business. It, before we do, let me just summarize that for the audience that may have zoned out for a second, because this is a fascinating background. We got Goldman Sachs, which is like the ultimate institution, to GE Capital, which is another institution, to Apple, which is a you know a big blue I've chip public company. Yes, <laughs> institution. And then you jump into a the CFO role in a cannabis startup, which for the audience, if you may or may not be, we'll, we should talk about cannabis. Wild West of yeah. business. I mean, truly yeah. on the frontiers of regulation, legality, banking with cash. I mean, as a CFO, that's wild. And then into high times and then into acquisition entrepreneurship. So somebody who's seen multiple different cultural environments. So fascinating. So anyways, just wanted to highlight that. Tell us what we, what we missed there, Paul. Yeah, so although I had been part of like the big corporate environment, I got really lucky and I just constantly found myself doing kind of random startup stuff within the big organizations and everywhere I went. So starting with, with GE or starting with Goldman Sachs, I was out of undergrad, simply assigned to a team that was launching a private bank in Salt Lake City from scratch. And they were doing it in Salt Lake because Goldman had an industrial loan charter. And at the time, Utah had some loose banking laws. So there's some reason, there's some rationale of why they did what they did. Um, but it was cool because I got to do something from the ground up. We were, I was there the day when we swept deposits to create the, from brokerage accounts to create the base of the actual private bank. So we went from non-existent to the 50th largest bank overnight when we swept 16 billion in cash out of brokerage accounts. And then it was like, okay, now what do we do? We had to create lending products. We were mostly just lending to our own clients. So it was you know, taking wine collections as collateral to lend money for a G550 purchase, right? Like, so it was very cool stuff to see the type of clientele that Goldman has, as you can imagine. So that was a ton of fun building that really with the backing of Goldman. And then fast forward, jump to GE. After I did the leadership program, I had the chance to launch a new fleet financing business with Chrysler out of the Minnesota office. So a plumber that needs to finance 10 vans. So not a big corporation, just the guy you know that's on Main Street. Uh, I got to basically launch that business from scratch. And then Apple wanted to launch this enterprise financing business. And so I came in and they had been really big in education, mostly because their hardware was used well in education. So they would do financial leases over time. Uh, so anyway, when we came in, uh, I, I distinctly remember Tim Cook on stage talking about Apple's push into the enterprise that started with iPhone, then went iPad, then went Mac, right? That was kind of the sequence of, of products into the enterprise. So we would do capital leases and we would do fair market value leases. Uh, using third-party money, we just branded it as Apple Financial Services. And so I managed all those relationships and kind of built that business from scratch. 
So a ton of fun. And then fun fact that a lot of the residual value work that we did that, you know, how much is an iPhone worth or an iPad worth, you mm-hmm. know, two years from now is now used as the iPhone upgrade program in the commercial lending program. So if, if anybody is listening that gets an iPhone every year, like I do, when I just trade it in and get the newest one, that was all born out of the research and work we did out of the enterprise space. So cool. anyway, that I mean, that's kind of the big corporate. That was fun to kind of be part of that, to see how we think about, you know, research and launching new businesses with corporate backing. It's really no different than like, an investor giving you money to go launch a business and they expect a return, right? It's just happens to be the parent company that's putting in the investment and headcount and dollars and resources. And then they want to see a return as a business unit. So fast forward, jumping into cannabis, super fascinating, right? I didn't know anything about the space in 2016, except that I felt that California was going to go recreational. So remember, I made this jump from Apple into cannabis when it was purely medical and it was very much the Wild West. And I tell people this joke of like, I, I went from Apple's corporate campus in Cupertino, you know, not worrying about a thing except for, you know, what I was going to drink at the Friday parties, right, with with Tim Cook out on the lawn, to literally worrying about my distribution driver being held up at gunpoint in in broad daylight in San Diego in the parking lot of a cannabis dispensary, which happened. I mean, that's, hy- that's so, hypothetical or... Oh no, that's it's not, not hypothetical. It's definitely that, not. Yeah. It's happened, and and more than once. He had a look once. in his eye like that. And he so, lived a lifetime in that day. That's a, yeah, yeah. It was, see, it's so PTSD. my hair is gone. Like, yeah, that, that is what happened. So, For sure. so we can dive we can dive more into cannabis, but it was just fascinating because this was kind of the the blow up. The first experience I had as CFO was an edibles manufacturer, and, and I didn't really know a lot about the space. But when I got in, I quickly realized. <clears throat> that the margins just weren't going to work with how the company had been operating with what how they were buying raw materials and so i immediately jumped into basically vertical integration mode and so and then raising capital so we went from an edibles manufacturer making chocolates to purchase or leasing a cultivation site converting it into a cannabis cultivation site which was a former cut flower site from monterey county where roses were grown in the 90s so converted that to cannabis so we started growing Then we got licensed the first manufacturing lab to use hydrocarbon in the state of California, which 12 months previous to that approval would have been a mandatory five-year prison sentence if you were caught doing what we got approved to do. So that's how fast all this stuff changed, talking about the Wild West of of business. And, And so that was cool. And so then we grew, we extracted the oil, we made edibles, we distributed dispensaries. So it was one of the first big companies that acted like a traditional distributor in the space, taking you know products that are all nicely packaged. A funny story on this real quick. We had a, a distribution driver pulled over by the cops. And remember, this is legal under Prop 215 in California, but kind of, right? California totally stayed out of it, so they didn't regulate anything. So again, very much the Wild West. So technically it was legal, but we had Highway Patrol pull over one of our distribution drivers, and they opened up the back. And we had, you know, case packs and we had all of our products in like, you know, 12 units in a case pack and it was beautifully done. And the cops started dying laughing. They're like, what the hell is this? Like, they just couldn't believe that cannabis was getting to be a consumer packaged good industry. Right. So anyway, tons of tons of hilarious, funny stories like that. But just fast forward, had the chance to become the CEO of a neighboring company in cannabis, Grupo Floor, and basically went to work raising money and vertically integrating them as well. The only difference between those two companies was we also decided to open a retail as well. So we were fully vertically integrated, including retail in and around kind of Monterey County in the Bay Area. And they're they're doing very well today with five retail stores. And I think a few more coming in the Bay. 
And then it ended up, I was going to leave cannabis, actually. I actually left without a, without a role in mind. And then High Times, a buddy called me and said, hey, will you go talk to High Times? They're thinking about doing some cool stuff. I think you should chat with them. And, and I was kind of hesitant, but then decided to, to run down to LA. And that rest was history. I joined to kind of help them restructure. And we can get into more of that if you want. It's fascinating kind of taking a 45-year-old brand and, and really pivoting what they did over the last handful of years. So that brings us to current day. And, and then so I can talk more about it later. We can dive into the business purchase just because that's probably a, a story in and of itself. Yeah, let's culminate let's, with the business purchase, but go ahead, Kev. Yeah, let's get to that in a second. But but I, yep. I do think it'll be interesting to dig in on that because I think there are probably a lot of listeners who aren't super familiar with the cannabis industry. They've probably heard of this brand high times and things like that. So, so talk about that for a second, this idea of moving into a brand. Because it's not, I mean, it was in the industry, but this wasn't like, add on a tangential service. I mean, this was like effectively just a complete and utter like redirection of the company. Yeah. So, so break down like yeah. the, the kind of th- thought process that went into that and how you tackle walking into what was effectively a media branding company and turning into a manufacturing distribution and retail company. Yeah. So it, 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 it really had to do with a lot of people in the space well, globally know the brand, right? Even if you weren't a cannabis consumer, it was a top 10 circulated magazine at some yeah. point in the 80s, right? Started in 1974. And, and it was, it was kind of everywhere. It was on 7-Eleven stands, right? Um, you can still find it, I think, in Walmart in Canada, like in their shelves. So anyway, it's, but it was a magazine, right? And then, of course, in the 90s went, you know, digital. Hightimes.com was registered before Google.com, right? Like that was oh, how wow. forward thinking you know, these people were that owned it. And so, so, but it was media, media, and it was all kind of around the edges of the space reporting, but it's also fun to talk to people around the world because it's where people learned how to grow from the pages of the magazine. It's where mm-hmm. people got their first seeds from the back pages of the classified section of the magazine where they, you know, then pop seeds and learn how to you know, figure out genetics and breeding. And so it's, it's actually fascinating to kind of follow the whole industry cycle and a lot of what people know today come from the research and yeah. the writers from High Times Magazine. And then in the, in the late 80s, they launched the Cannabis Cup, which was crowning the best weed around the world. And actually, the first one was launched in Amsterdam. And so ultimately, since 88, the company had been media and events for that entire time. And so what we were looking at, though, is traditional media with like advertising dollars, you know, no surprise, is kind of going away, right? I mean, it's, it has been for many, many years. And so the events were doing very, very well. Um, but we were figure, we wanted to figure out how to use the IP and how do you leverage the brand name to, to go into other pieces of the industry. And, and that's ultimately, we spent a lot of time looking at where we could go, what we could do. And ultimately what we felt like we, we should do is take the brand and actually go into the plant touching space. And so, and we felt that in media and events, we were connecting brands and consumers and so we just simply sat in the middle because we were kind of this exploratory kind of mechanism where people would go to an event and they would find new products, right? The launch of a vape pen didn't happen that long ago, right? That was kind of found at like a Cannabis Cup event or in the pages of the magazine, like, oh, wow, what's this, right? So it was all about exploration. And so we felt, we felt that we could do that also in retail where we could connect p- people with brands in the retail format mm-hmm. where they come in, they can explore, they can look at new products, form factors, new brands. And, and our value to the customers was, hey, you trust us. We built up this brand value over 45 years. Let us also help you kind of pick the best value product at every price yeah. tier on a retail shelf. 
And then from there, then we started backing up the supply chain and focused in on manufacturing and cultivation. And ultimately, what I mentioned earlier in the ver vertical integration, in states like California, you almost have to to survive for because of the margins. And so, you know, we focused on that, and then and then we launched a pretty robust licensing business. And High Times had been pretty clean um, as far as like licensing in the past. Whereas sometimes you might walk into an old legacy brand and find that it's been bastardized all over the world with licensing, and people kind of took money from anybody to do whatever. And a lot of times brands find themselves not really understanding who has what license where around yep. the world. But we didn't really we didn't have that problem at all. It was fair. It was it was fairly clean IP. And so we kind of sat down and talked about kind of the certain areas that we wanted to go into and have a licensing agent. And we were the only cannabis company allowed at the uh, international licensing show in Las Vegas, which was last year. So that was the first time. And it went so well. Our booth was like mobbed, right? And we were next to like Universal and Sony and Disney and everybody else that the, the show wanted us to kind of create a cannabis village and bring in a whole bunch of other brands that were interested in licensing. And we, I ended up not doing that this year and I ended up leaving, but they still may have to do that in the future. So oh, anyway, awesome. kind of fun way to see how to reposition and ultimately the dollars, right, change dramatically when right. you shift, right? So the company goes from roughly 15 million-ish in revenue to, you know, I think this year we'll post somewhere in the 70 to $80 million revenue range. So that kind of gives you an idea over the last couple of years of what that pivot did. Yeah, that's that's wild. Even through the, the the corporate stuff, though, Paul, I hear entrepreneurship just screaming from your 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 blood there. And you guys, you guys have you said six brothers. How many of the brothers are entrepreneurs, guys? Well, there there are six kids. So there's six there's kids. Paul and Paul and I, and three other brothers, and then a sister. So. And how many how many are entrepreneurs? Really, oh, I mean, yes. I I guess you would say maybe our older brother to an extent so he's a ultra high net worth private wealth manager spent a while at goldman then merrill and then launched his own firm with a number of partners mm -hmm. so a kind of the kind of the hybrid corporate entrepreneurship though La launched a business but not like a small business in the way that that we would think about i mean it was you know they had billions of dollars under management uh you know super successful by every stretch of the imagination but I mean, it was a business launch, you know, from from the ground up. Our other two brothers are have have been pretty corporate their their whole careers, I would say. As has my sister, who you know has been a stay at home mom for several years. But even her prior career, she was at at Goldman and some other. That Goldman pops up in our family quite a bit, as you're <laughs> hearing. But it's really just just Paul and I, and then our oldest brother Darren to an extent, who who launched that practice and then had a an exit. Uh, I guess it's been almost two years ago now. So yeah. And what's fascinating, you know, to tell you guys is I wish that I would have really understood or known, and maybe this is common with everybody, but like when I graduated undergrad 20 years ago, I wish I would have really understood the business yeah. buying per because to me, entrepreneurship, even going through entrepreneurship classes at undergrad and to a lesser extent, MBA school was all about starting a business and raising yeah. venture capital and yeah, swinging Silicon for the Valley unicorn fences, yep. right? Like, like the, you know, the, yeah, you know, that's all anybody talks about. That's all. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, that's kind of what I did. Like I launched a bike and ski shop from scratch. Right. And I've, I've done a bunch of ventures. And part of me thinks that if I would have understood this or part of me knows that there's no way I would have done all that because launching something yeah. from scratch, as you guys know, is you know, a, a challenge, a massive challenge. Oh, it's a piece and of so, cake, Paul. I don't know what you're talking about. I can't. It's good. Funny enough is Kevin I constantly I have great. different ideas. We look healthy. <laughs> 
I'm, cause, I'm constantly thinking about new startup ideas, and then I go, wait, hold on, what am I doing? I can just buy a business. So anyway. Well, I mean, what do you think? So one, I, you know, I wanted to highlight because you have a ton of side hustles as well. So you did like entrepreneurship in a corporate environment with a bunch. If you look at your LinkedIn, you've got a bunch of side hustles sprinkled in there. And now you've, you've culminated in acquisition entrepreneurship. And there are, have been people recently who have, have pushed back on this notion. I think that the, the academic guidance was buying a business is easier than starting a business or lower risk than starting a business, which the, the colloquial or whatever the traditional wisdom around the starting process is a 90 plus percent failure rate, whereas the, the buying process, however you calculate it, has to be lower than that. If you want to look at SBA failure rates, which some people argue are imperfect because there's a number of things that don't go into those stats, but I think it's our best indicator of of the failure rates. They're very low, particularly for like what I characterize yeah. as like blue chip ETA, yeah. which is what you did. You went and bought a good yeah. company. You know, you knew what you were looking for, yeah. and you you didn't buy a three hundred thousand dollar wing restaurant. So you've done all this. You've been in corporate. You've seen entrepreneurship in a corporate environment, starting new initiatives, and then you ultimately decided to buy a business. Talk to us about the risk analysis of the acquisition process versus the startup process, in your opinion. Yeah, so, well, I don't know who thinks that it's riskier to buy a business than start one because that seems crazy to me, but, you know, I'm sure. Well, I think the analysis is the the magnitude of the risk, right? Because you've got multi-million dollar personally guaranteed debt. Yeah. Yeah, 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 okay, understood, yeah. Yeah, so you know, I got to tell the story with, with with how I bought the business. It's it's not normal, right? It was it was very much a right place, right time, and also just to mention, it's in the cannabis industry. So to kind of to finish this off, three years ago, I started with a couple of partners a business in in the Utah medical cannabis market where we end up being awarded two retail licenses and there's only 15 in the entire state. So we have two of the 15, one of three in Salt Lake. And then we ended up buying a cultivation site from somebody who won it. And that's one of eight cultivation sites. So we've been growing and selling on our own shelves for a couple of years. But the piece that we were missing was the piece sitting in the middle, which is the manufacturing piece, which is the conversion from plant material into any other product other than kind of you know, flour that's sold to, to consume. And so ultimately there was a business that popped up called Pure Utah Processing in a kind of situation where there needed to be a quick sale. High Times was involved in the purchase of the parent company, but this needed to be spun off from the parent. And so I actually didn't have the chance to do traditional due diligence as one might expect. And, and some of the advice that, that people talk about on, I'm sure your podcast and your listeners listen about is going through the whole traditional process. I had seven days to get it done. And, and the reason is, is because the, the company needed the money to pay off some debt obligations. And, and so I had been around the business. I had been down to meet the people months leading up to this. And so I knew the process, I knew the business, but because I was in the market, I knew exactly who they were, what they were doing, how they were doing it. And I, I understood where they fit in kind of like the vertical inter, inter, you know, integration with my business, but then also the broader market. So I just had deep, deep domain expertise. I, I looked at the numbers basically real quick, sifted through them. Okay, I like it. It's what I think it is, APAR. And then Kevin helped me do paperwork over Memorial Day weekend. And, and ultimately, uh, we, ended up, we ended up, cl- Happy birthday we to ended my up son. closing. Kevin, yeah, I, 
And so Kevin anyway, only works holiday closing, weekends, as a matter of fact. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I, we ended up closing very, very quickly. And then it was a little bit, it, it was interesting. It wasn't like the traditional purchase where you walk in and, and kind of the business is in place. Because it was kind of a larger corporate spinoff, there was things I had to replace immediately, right? So my yeah. finance team support was gone. My marketing and graphic design support was gone because they were all sitting at the parent company level. And so I had to jump in and just start to fill gaps and hire third parties and do things like that. Um, but but as far as, as far as kind of a risk assessment, I, there's no way I would have done something like that if it wasn't the cannabis industry in the state of Utah that I know very well. There were, I would have spent a lot more time really focusing in on like how I look at venture startups you know, from scratch, which is a ton, a ton yeah. of research, looking at everything, jotting down notes, you know, talking with experts. So you know, before I start anything, there's a lot of time spent looking into it and where the future is. And so anyway, so it's not really a fair comparison, but, you know, interesting nonetheless. Well, it's, well, well, it, it, it underscores something. And, and Eric is, has said this a number of times that like, we see a lot in UTA mild to the first inch to the second. Mm-hmm. And, and like that, this may have been your like first pure play ETA, but it wasn't your first certainly not your first acquisition, certainly not your first deal, certainly not your first business. And, and so I, you know, I, it is a fascinating story. It's a great reminder, I think, to listeners, how much biz, how much business and entrepreneurship like this is done by being in the right place at the right time. And, and that particularly on those second, third, fourth, 28th business ventures, how opportunistic you can be when you really, really know your industry or your yep. niche or your your yeah. locale or who your competitors are, et cetera. You have the luxury of being that strategic, that opportunistic. And and that actually, in a lot of respects, is what wins the deals. I suspect you don't close on this acquisition if you weren't in a position to be that opportunistic and move that quickly. Like it, it, this deal never yeah. would have happened. Exactly. Well, and it's honestly, just to... it's, yeah. No, I was just going to bring it full circle because at the beginning I created kind of a straw man where I said people are saying that, you know, startup is mm-hmm. less risky than buying. What they're actually saying is that when you buy a business in an industry that you don't know without small business experience or entrepreneurial experience, taking on multi-million dollar personally guaranteed debt, you're putting yourself in a potentially yeah. very poor situation. So that I think that better yeah. characterizes the argument. Yeah. And you, what you're saying is, that's not what you did, I think. Yeah, yeah. And so it's also, to Kevin's point, really interesting because I don't, I've never really talked about this, but people may be wondering, well, how did I buy it? How did I finance it, right? Because you can't do an SBA loan that quickly, right? And first things first, you can't use an SBA loan to buy a cannabis business because it's yeah. still federally illegal. So it was an let's, all cash let's purchase, Let's talk about right? that and too. So, so yeah, and so, but what happened was, talking about right place, right time, I had been sitting on a bunch of cash in my bank account, earning no interest. And I had even borrowed some money for a different venture that I was paying decent interest on every month that I was thinking about simply paying back off because that venture didn't move forward. And so I was just thinking about sending the money back. But I just kept sitting there and I don't know why I did it, but the money was just sitting in the account and I just kept paying interest monthly payments thinking, hey, if some, maybe something's gonna come along. And but I had no idea that it would be something like this that would pop up. So I fortunately had basically money sitting in my checking account because I wouldn't even have had enough time 
for the required closing to actually sell stock, wait for settlement, move the money over over Memorial Day weekend, and then yeah, send the line. Right? So yeah, that can't even happen. that couldn't even have happened. And so anyway, I got I got fairly fortunate because I was I, I basically had dry powder right sitting there on the sideline waiting to strike, and it was just the perfect situation of right place, right time, and then also being ready to pounce on it, which I was able to do. And then mind you, I had to borrow some money from a couple of my partners to finish off the purchase price. And this kind of goes to maybe another topic, but those investors have done very well in a different venture in Utah, which is the retail stores and the cannabis grow that I made a phone call and was able to borrow 600 grand in like 30 minutes. So basically made four phone calls. They all said, yep, 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 yep. In for 150. And they wired the money the next day. And you, you didn't know, call your the, brother the purchase for so. this, for the 600 grand. <laughs> I the called you. I bat- like voicemail. Right? Bad, bad life advice to call your lawyer to borrow money. Yeah, for sure. He's uh, certainly sure. poorer than you are in almost all, all, all instances. But that, that also goes down kind of the vein of like, hey, if you've done well for people and by people in the yeah. past, you're going to get another bite at the apple and they're going to back you in your next venture and whatever else you want to do. Yeah, I say this to people all the time, like half or better of convincing people to invest or lend money in your deals is selling yourself as much as selling the deal. And yeah. and once they have that track record, that experience with you selling the next investment is, is just, I mean, it's so much easier, so much easier when you've established that trust. But um, yeah. yeah, Eric, you wanted to circle back on something, but I, yeah, I forgot no, what it was. I want to switch gears and talk about cannabis if we can. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think we'll, we'll love to talk about, but I, I, I know a lot about cannabis. I know too much about cannabis, the industry, to be clear. I personally believe this is my thesis and my thesis alone. I'm not a financial advisor, but I believe that there's generational investment opportunity in cannabis. Maybe at some point it'll eventually come to fruition because you've got an industry that is not federally. You've got patchwork state regulation. You've got a number of banks. You don't, you know, you've got right to 280E under the tax code, which makes deducting business expenses impossible, which creates a very poor business environment. You can't bank, so you can't put your money in banks, traditional banks, or at least whatever, certain banks. So there's a lot of cash transactions. But what it's done is it's created this reverse regulatory environment where the big institutions, I think, are unable to invest in the space. The the folks who would traditionally buy up good opportunities pre-IPO when the rest of us then have the opportunity to get them at extremely high valuations can't get into the space because it's not federally permissible. So you've got a number of U.S.-based cannabis companies, large, I think, well-operated cannabis companies like TrueLeaf and Kiraleaf and Green Thumb Industries and whomever else. And that's, again, not an investment endorsement at all, but just stating some facts. They're incredibly well-run but are hampered by this regulatory environment, I think what happens at some point in cannabis is that once it becomes federally permissible, whatever that means, the, the big institutions will then be able to invest in these companies and they will do it in, it, overnight. And it'll happen overnight and it'll take off overnight. But when that night will be is another question. So you've got... <laughs> A slow burn, yeah. I think, of these high-quality companies that don't have access to the markets. They don't have to access to high-quality capital sources. And so there's a slow burn in the industry. And so you left high times. I suspect you were experiencing that 
every day at high times, kind of win, yeah. win, 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 you know, and now you're, you've continued into the cannabis space. So talk a little bit about, number one, tell me if I'm crazy and I'm completely wrong. It's not this generational opportunity, but two, give me your perspective as an executive within the space, kind of what you're seeing and whether you would encourage others to, to, to go into cannabis. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're exactly right on every facet of what you mentioned. It's, I gave my, so in 2016, when I first joined the industry, I gave myself like five years. Hey, if this isn't federally legal in five years, then I'm out. I'll go back to something traditional, right? I'll do something different. Here we are seven years later, I'm still in it. And it's been fascinating to watch, right? Because just small caveat, the big groups, the CPG brands, the alcohol companies, tobacco, pharmaceutical, they can't invest into U.S.-based cannabis companies, but they have invested heavily into Canadian companies and other companies around the world. And the difference is, is because the Canadian cannabis companies are federally legal. They're chartered by Health Canada, right? And so that's the difference. And they're allowed to list, funny enough, they're allowed to list on their prominent stock exchange, the, the um, TSX, but they're also able to list on NYSE or NASDAQ here in the U.S., and so you have Canadian companies listing in the U.S. for capital. You have U.S. companies listing in Canada to access capital. And it's completely backwards. It's, it's the dumbest thing you've ever, you've ever seen. Bizarre. But you've got to do that for, because of regulatory issues. And so the federal government just, they haven't moved, right? You had Donald Trump, which is supportive of medical but not recreational. You had Joe Biden leading up to the election saying that he, you know, is for the people and he'll legalize, you know, cannabis and then hasn't said a single thing in the last three years since he's been in office. So not literally nothing at, at all, not just um, on cannabis, but he literally hasn't spoken yeah, in three years. Maybe nothing at all. <laughs> nothing coherent at least. Um, okay. That's a joke. So, that is a joke. So, you know, it's, it's been, it's been kind of interesting and frustrating to watch. Now, when you mention about these big companies that might invest or snatch up companies well, that's true. And some people might look at that as a bug. Some of us entrepreneurs look at it as a feature. And so right. because they're blocked out of the whole industry, it actually gives a smaller company more time and more runway yep. to actually build a solid business that they can do something with, whether or not it's list publicly or sell or, or whatever it is. And so that's that's been kind of it's been fascinating to watch. You've seen a lot of wealth that's created from people that have launched businesses. You've seen a lot of kind of, you got to imagine like, you've got guys that kind of dealt in the traditional market coming up that may not have the most traditional business sense, but are incredible entrepreneurs, to be honest. Some of the smartest people I've ever met, no education and kind of came up in this game. And then you have kind of the corporate people that are trying to take advantage of a situation because yeah. they have cash and they can jump in and they can do some some things, but they've never been involved in cannabis before the movement and whatnot. So the blending of those two industries has been pretty fascinating. Some of the, unfortunately, the corporate guys have been the more successful guys because they know how to play the game. They know how to set up a company to take it public, to then sell their shares or walk away with huge equity positions that you know made them rich, but they didn't really know how to grow you know, a pound of weed themselves. So it's kind of, it's, well, it's a really interesting market to watch kind of evolve over time. And honestly, I don't know that we're that much closer. You know, you hear some movement around a change from schedule one to schedule three, that doesn't do a whole lot for the industry, except open up some opportunities for the elimination of 280E, which is the burdensome tax code, which we can chat about in a minute. It does help a little bit on some banking, but it also opens, you know, the potential floodgate for, this to be pushed more in a direction of pharmaceutical and box out some of the traditional kind of groups that have been set up over the last decade. So, 
Well, it's it can, cannabis is inter- interesting, and, and I, I do want to get to like the financials and 280E in a second. But just to, to pause on this, like you, you mentioned it briefly, and I think the cannabis industry is almost like a caricature of some some of what we see in Main Street, where you've got like you know the retiring baby boomer with an HVAC HVAC company. He's been installing systems for forty years and is retiring and selling it to the you know thirty nine year old that graduated from Vanderbilt with an MBA and you know hasn't put a sneaker on in the last eight years. You know only wears leather soled shoes and you 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 kind of set up it's you know this this kind of cultural clash. I feel like that's almost a caricature in cannabis because it's such a counterculture in cannabis. You know, there's a lot of resistance, at least from where I'm sitting. And I'm curious how that impacts the businesses and how they're operated and things like that. There's a lot like even more resistance to what I would call cannabis culture, seeing the, you know, the, the MBAs and Goldman Sachs types coming into the industry and trying to make over the industry. Like how much I have to assume that that in this industry has to play into the business planning and things like that, because just because it is such a massive cultural clash. Yeah, yeah, no, it absolutely is. And you I think where we've seen the most success is when the corporate guys humble themselves to say, hey, I don't know what I don't know. And they partner with some of the traditional market guys and then really build a solid plan on creating good products, but also with good corporate hygiene. And so you kind of, every party brings something to the table. And if you can pull that off, then those are the businesses that tend to be much more successful. Yeah. So, so let's drill in on that successful for a little bit, because as I understand the industry, like it, it's almost like a house of cards, even with the well-run companies in large part due to 280E. So for just to back up for a hot second, uh, Eric mentioned it briefly, but 280E is a provision in the tax code which says that if you engage in a business that's engaged in illegal conduct under federal law, which would be the growing cultivation, manufacture, distribution of, of cannabis products, that you are ineligible to make a pretty wide ranging kind of list of business deductions. You can't deduct pretty much anything except COGS, basically cost of goods, as, as I understand it. Yeah. So even these well-run companies that are that are doing well, that have great corporate hygiene, that are quote unquote profitable on paper, aren't so profitable necessarily once they're paying their tax liability. It feels like in yeah. large part, it's all a play towards legalization. Like it, it's pretty hard to yeah. actually make cash yeah. profit it is it like break break that yeah. break down the finances for us yeah it's it's almost it, it to be honest with you it's almost impossible and so and anybody that's interested may want to go look up you know quarterly filings for any of the largest public cannabis companies but here's a great here's a great explanation of EBITDA versus net income right or yeah. net cash yeah. flow right because that even a headline number is fantastic right because it's before taxes right so yeah, yeah sure yeah. you can be very profitable and it looks great, on, as you said, on paper. The problem is, is that that T under EBITDA is the tax obligation, which is 280E. So anything below the line. And so this impacts different, is not deductible. And this impacts different businesses across the supply chain differently. So it probably has the worst impact on retail stores because your cost of goods sold is simply the product you're bringing in. So yeah. your gross margin will be anywhere between 45 and 65% simply based off of how you're buying and where you price. Anything after that, rent, employees, utilities, advertising, nothing is deductible. So 
you're effectively taxed on your gross margin. And so yeah. if your effective tax rate is, you know, whatever, you know, you would call it, say, what of 25, 30% corporate tax, your effective tax rate, when you look at it as compared to top line revenue is actually could be closer to 60, 70, 80%. Yeah. And so it's just asinine. And so most people can't make any money in, in that scenario. With cultivation and manufacturing, it's a little bit better because most of your expenses are in your cost of goods sold. And so all your manufacturing labor, your rent, your, your every, everything yeah. you're doing, all your raw materials is sitting in cogs. And so you, you're able to push all that up and keep as little as possible below the line. And so, you know, you're able to write off quite a bit more than like a retail business, but it's still painful and it's still uncomfortable. So you're going to have some of these largest companies like a truly cure leaf that either are paying their taxes and they're paying taxes basically out of investor money because they don't have enough cash flow to pay that tax obligation or or they're not paying the taxes <laughs> and, and they're and they're accruing a tax obligation, which several yeah. of them are. And so and they disclose it in their in their financials. And so now they're playing a game that's going to say that, hey, when there is eventually a shift or a move in the market, we're going to be able to settle this with the IRS for pennies on the dollar or something less than what the headline number of taxes owed is. is. Now, when I talk to tax partners, you know, KPMG and, and the like, they say that that's absolutely crazy to to consider because the IRS is never going to go back and let people off the hook for a tax obligation that was on the books at the yeah. time. So it's an interesting game and you're right. It's a bit of a house of cards. And what a lot of people, what they're playing is, is that eventually this is going to get solved and these businesses are going to go from unprofitable because of the tax obligation to very profitable once that flips into yeah. a, a traditional corporate business that can write off business expenses. So how, well, and how it's, it's and I, just to, for the audience's benefit, I've got Green Thumb Industries year end earnings report on the screen here just to highlight some of the things that Paul's talking about. But what jumps off the screen for, for me, Paul, and something you touched on earlier that I'd love to hear more about is the distinction between these U.S. companies. And again, I'm not endorsing anything here. I'm not a financial, yeah. not an RIA, but Green Thumb Industries did a billion dollars in revenue in 2022, a billion dollars yeah. in revenue. And yeah. it's from what I can discern from this. And again, you know, you just talked about it in more detail, not making a ton of money off of that billion dollars, but a tremendous, I think, growth and business opportunity if 280E gets repealed. Now, contrast that to the Canadian companies. And I don't have any direct analogs here to, to compare in front of me, but I think the, the biggest players in Canada are what? Canopy Growth and Tilray Industries and who else? Yeah, um, exactly. Aurora. Those companies federally I think Aurora listed and on the NASDAQ. Yeah. 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 You can go buy uh, stock in those companies today, yeah. not making very much money, not Correct. very well. And again, I don't not critical of these companies. I guess I haven't looked at anything recently. I should qualify, but not, you know, the reputation is that they're not making very much money comparatively to the U.S. companies. The market in Canada is smaller than, I believe, the state of Colorado. So, again, just to highlight what you talked about before, the oddity between these U.S. based companies that are considered incredibly well run making a ton of money, big total addressable market versus the Canadian companies that are legal that are not in a good marketplace. So I'd, lo I'd love to hear your perspective on yeah, that. You, yeah. So think about it this way. And I never really had to think about this, but, but there's, only, there's only about as many Canadian residents in the entire country as there are in California, roughly about 35 million, right? So you have, so it's a good point because, and something that I probably should have brought up earlier, 
you have to think about every state in the cannabis market as basically operating as its own country. And that's kind of weird to say, but every single state has its own regulatory policies yeah. that are, that could be wildly different from border to border. And so, you know, like I'm in the Utah market right now, but it's drastically different from our neighboring state, Colorado, which was the first state to legalize for recreational use or Nevada or Oregon. And so, you know, every one of the states is basically operating as like its own sovereign you know, nation, uh, creating its own laws, its own tax structures. And so that's, again, has been one of the reasons why we can set up a business in Utah. We're insulated from the outside pressures, even from the cannabis space. So there's big, big corporations in cannabis in California and them not being able to ship product to Utah has allowed me to build my business to a certain point, right? And so it also even drills down even to that faction of, of, you know, competing within certain companies. Now, I will say GTI, if anybody looks that up, is actually one of the better run companies that actually does have some cash flow. So I think it, it even said they had some cash flow on that. That's yes. not typical of some of the other companies. So, so the yeah, so cash flow of 150 million. Yeah. So what was really interesting early on is the Canadians were their market caps went through the roof early on. Everybody wanted a piece. Everybody yeah, the wanted to get in. Multiples were outrageous. So multiples were just crazy. <laughs> they were like the hottest tech, right? That, that's getting listed yep. on on Nasdaq. Yeah, I'll, I'll pull up so some everybody went into charts here. The problem with that with that was that they. <laughs> Everybody went out too hot, too fast, right? It's just the old classic tale. And a lot of people that bought stock bought it on the way up and then it's crashed and people have lost 80 or 90% of whatever they put in. Now, to your point earlier, if people hold on to that for the long run, it will bounce back. But, but the Canadian companies really were over leveraged. They raised way too much money because it was a cash grab. The investment banks in, in Canada on Bay Street in Toronto raised basically as much money as humanly possible for these companies because they... they now, now I kind of understand looking back, they kind of float as there's hot markets like gold and silver and, you know, all sorts of other things. They always, they move from what's hot to what's hot and this is what was hot and they take advantage and they go all in and they, they put their investors in there. Um, and so, yeah, you can go to NASDAQ, you can, you can buy these stocks now. Uh, the market is fairly limited because these, these companies only are selling to those, that 35 million population. Whereas when the walls come down between these states, Borders, as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. then becomes, you know, by far the largest market in the world for cannabis. So, yeah, it's they're really just different. They're different companies. They're done differently. They're operated differently. But the access to capital was the biggest difference where the Canadians were able to access U.S. dollars on, on exchanges and U.S. companies have not been able to do that. Yeah. And you see in these charts, like canopy growth peaked at, let's see if I can get, it was like $50, $50 a share in uh, the wall sheet, I need a five-year max here, but it was 50 bucks a share in 2018 or 45, somewhere in that range, very high, 51, 53 yeah. in September of 2018. It peaked again, I think, around the election when the Democrats won the election, and that now it's down to sub a dollar. It's down to 30-some-odd cents, so yeah. pretty I think pretty, that peak was brutal. when everybody thought the U.S. would move quickly on legalization, yeah. right? So. Yep, 2018. But we'll, what will be interesting is if you get that legalization, and I think my thesis is that it probably doesn't come through Congress. It probably comes in some, some sort of black swan event, like like the Supreme Court rules it like a violation of the Commerce Clause or something like that. And then these charts, I think, yeah. take off like yeah. a missile. But, but who knows? Yeah. That's pure conjecture. 
But, uh, but you know, th- on a more macro level too, Paul, what you just described is fascinating to me because not only is it happening on a state-by-state basis where you're saying, I'm in Utah, it's fantastic that the, 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 Cana- you know, the California and other larger MSOs can't get in and compete with me. Well, I yep. think what happens on a macro level is, you know, Trulieve and, and Green Thumb Industries are building, 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 and they don't have to worry about Budweiser or Marlboro or, what, you know, one of these large tobacco yep. companies coming and competing with them and kind of kicking their ass overnight, I think. So it's interesting to see them have the opportunity to build national brands as well. So anyways, fascinating and you're space, a billion, man. A billion it. dollars in revenue. That's that's only one company. They're Curaleaf and Trulieve also, I think, I believe, have over a billion in revenue as well. So. We're not talking about small companies here by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. In the U.S. Fascinating. At least. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, let's pivot for a second. We only we only have a couple of minutes left, Paul. And I, I, I think it'd be interesting to chat for a, a few minutes at the end here just about being a chief executive, being a president of a company. You, you've done it for several years now. You know, a lot of new entrepreneurs or people thinking of jumping into entrepreneurship, you know, that's that's one of the larger skill gaps, I think people, a lot of times people will buy businesses and in industries they know, or they'll have finance down, yeah. but they've never bet the buck has never stopped with them as the chief executive of a company. So kind of an open-ended question, but mm-hmm. you know, talk for a second, if, if you're talking to a new entrepreneur or someone of thinking, you know, thinking about entrepreneurship, buying a business and stuff like that, how do you think about leading a company as as kind of the 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 person at the top how do you tackle the challenges of learning this role stepping into this role growing into this role that that you've never done before i i guess kind of taking yourself back to your early days as you first kind of transitioned into these slots yeah so i tell people that my first experience as a ceo I was 36, which I think in corporate is young, but in kind of startup world is old, maybe. You know, you got all these 20-year-old <laughs> starting companies. But but I will tell people that over a stretch of a couple of years, it was the most kind of intense learning that I ever had. And it's actually more around soft skills. I know we talked about industry expertise earlier that I could do the move I did because I understood the industry. Yeah. But I would put industry expertise at honestly like 10th on my list of the most important things for being successful at leading a business. Like I I actually say experience is incredibly overrated. And I'll give an example because there's this nascent cannabis industry in 2016 that's kind of bubbling up. I went from not knowing that a plant grows in 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark. I didn't know anything about the space to being on stage at conferences speaking as an expert less than 12 months later about the industry, where it's going, how we should be thinking about it. So like, I just think that you can, if you're dedicated, you can learn anything very quickly. Now, maybe there's some industries or some things that take decades of of expertise to learn, but you can, you can get enough of that knowledge to be dangerous. So that kind of goes to the person that is buying a business that isn't in an industry that they have any background in. So what does work? I mean, part of it is just people skills. And I feel that being in, everybody has a different style, but I tend to be super transparent with the employee base. Uh, It's something that I feel is super important. So like even as a private company, every quarter I would stand in front of all the employees, including the hourly kind of employees that just joined us and and break down the financials and where we stand as a company and what we did and what we're planning on doing in the next quarter, what the goals are. 
And even some of the founders of those companies were pretty upset that I would actually do that. And because oh, they felt it as like sharing too much information. Right. Yeah. And so, so that was, so that's really interesting, but so it's managing people. I would say I w- it was honestly like 50, 60% of the job was really around the communication getting people to make sure that they understand that they're all headed in the right direction and how they all interact together with each other. And then I spent a lot of time interacting one-on-one with not just direct reports, but actually going down the chain and making sure that they understood that they could come to me with anything. And so that's kind of like number one. Then a couple of things, even if you're not an executive in, in a space I, I very much focused my career on jumping from different sections of business. So from sales and marketing to finance to operations, very specifically because I wanted to understand how all those functions worked. And when I actually walked in as a CEO of a company, I could walk into any meeting and meaningful, meaningfully participate in that meeting, whether or not we were talking about branding, marketing campaigns, yeah operations, supply chain, finance, it didn't matter because I was able to pick up those skills along the way. So again, anybody can learn those being in any job, right? You're either switching careers or switching companies, but you're building up a skill set that is going to basically make you a well-rounded kind of executive. What's interesting is that if you're a young kind of startup entrepreneur and you haven't had experience to go through all that, you're going to end up learning those skills as the chief executive in the startup, which many cases is a lot harder because you're being insulated or shielded, or you're only getting yes men telling you what you want to hear or see. And so that tends to be, I think, a little bit tougher. So anyway, you can translate a lot of the kind of these mundane skills into being a well-rounded leader. And I'm not like the big rah-rah, like leader, like cheerleader guy. I'm much more of the pragmatic, like, hey, look, I'm not gonna set unrealistic expectations on revenue targets or KPIs. We're simply going to create something that we think is reasonable. Here's the metrics and here's what, you know, I need you to do to kind of reach those goals. And so, you know, I think it, and it's worked, you know, in, in a couple of different companies. And I, you know, that's, I guess that's that's what I would say is is has been a little bit of the secret sauce. Yeah, super super fascinating. Well, I think we're up against a stop here, Eric. Any final questions for Paul well, before we we wrap this up? Just to give him a chance to plug whatever he wants to plug. I wanted to also mention our sponsors for today's podcast. We had Celsius Energy Drink, Pizza a Pizza Company, not <laughs> you're gonna, Marcos, and uh, Liquid you're Death. You're absolutely gonna um, get us the cease and desist letter. They want nothing to, clear, to do with this. There's no affiliation between myself and any of those brands, to be to be frank. But Paul, Paul, please feel free to plug whatever uh, you're working on, where people can find you if you want people to find you, and whatever else. Yeah. So funny enough is my business that I had to buy. Talking about funny rules that states make. Pure Utah Processing does not even have a website for you guys to go look at because we are not allowed to market ourselves by state rule. <laughs> And so unfortunately, nobody can go look at that. But the other businesses in Utah, if anybody wants to take a peek, is Beehive Pharmacy with an F, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y.com. That'll show kind of the two retail stores and what's going on in Utah. If you are a medical patient in another state and you come to Utah to ski, you can actually apply for a medical card a day or two ahead of time. And you can get a temporary medical card in the state of Utah and come visit us. So that's a lot of people don't know you can do that. And they risk bringing in cannabis from other states to smoke, you know, wherever on the mountain or, or someplace else. So that's kind of cool. And then, you know, anything else, I'm just, I'm working on other random stuff. I'm always looking at different business ventures. I'm looking at some health tech AI stuff and 
other things to get, you know, involved in, but that's about it. Social media, I'm actually not massive on social, funny enough, not like you guys, because I always felt like I was representing a company. And if I would say something dumb, then I didn't want to be canceled and people come after me. So I've always been fairly quiet, but I'm Laxman2221 on Twitter and Instagram. If anybody that's, wants to, that's actually there. X, Paul. I know you probably haven't logged in in a little while, so sorry. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's the app formerly known as Twitter. Yeah. No, that's that's funny, and we certainly have no shortage of stories of of new CEOs <laughs> closing on companies, posting publicly on Twitter that that have something to come back to bite them. So it's cer- certainly good advice and and smart to do. I'll always be careful what what you're putting out there when you're leading a team. But thanks for joining us. Yep. Uh, appreciate the time right and on. appreciate the conversation. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.